Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors on the ministry team, and I've been really looking forward to spending some time with you this morning. Um, I'm a conspiracy theory. Uh, I'm a conspiracy theory enthusiast. Let me make sure I get that right. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I am a conspiracy theory theory enthusiast. I love a good unsolved his, uh, unsolved mystery, especially a historical unsolved mystery. And uh, some, some of those could be something like, um, did we really land on the moon or was the whole thing staged or was it fake? Or are we keeping aliens captive in Area 51 in Roswell, New Mexico? Or perhaps, here's one, is Elvis really truly alive? Is he, is he with us? I see some heads nodding. Some of you, some of you really believe that. I love a good conspiracy theory. And one of those uh, unsolved mysteries that is kind of uh, re- we've revisited in the last a month or so is the unsolved mystery of Amelia Earhart. Have you guys seen that in the news? It's, it's captivated America's attention again. Am- uh, Amelia Earhart, for those of you that may not know, she was a American aviation pioneer. She was one of the first, or she was the first female pilot to, to fly solo across the Atlantic. Um, she was a tremendous advocate for equal rights and women's rights. And in 1937, she disappeared. Her and her co-pilot were making a trip to circumnavigate the globe. And in 1937, her plane disappeared. She disappeared. Her co-pilot disappeared. And for two years, they looked for her body. They looked for the remains of her plane, and they never found them. And in 1939, she was was deemed dead, at least we thought. Earlier this month, in the month of July, a recent archive photo has captured our attention again. And in this image, we believe, or they believe, that this image provided enough evidence to solve an 80-year-old unsolved mystery of what happened to Amelia Earhart. And in this picture, they believe that there is enough evidence to show her and her co-pilot had survived and was living in perhaps captivity in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. Or did it? Because just a week later, two Japanese bloggers came out and discovered that the photo in question that had captured everybody's attention actually was published in a travel book two years prior to Amelia Earhart actually taking that flight. And so the mystery continues. It's an unsolved mystery. Now, would you believe that many people... Many individuals alive today believe that the story, the life, and the death of Jesus to be a conspiracy theory as well. Many, many people believe it to be a, a hoax. They believe it to be a fairy tale. Where, where is Jesus now? Uh, if he's alive, what is he doing? Where is he at? The Apostles' Creed today, as we've been studying all summer, is going to answer that question. We're going to look at two lines in the Apostles' Creed that summarizes multiple passages found throughout Scripture that tell us exactly where Jesus is at right now and what He is doing. And we're in the middle of a series called Old Time Religion. We're studying Scripture to the, uh, through the lens of the Apostles' Creed. And we're in a section of the, uh, Amer- uh, the Apostles' Creed where we're looking at the person of of Jesus. And as we look at that section, you're going to see it's divided into three parts. There's Jesus in the past, 
Jesus currently right now, Jesus in the present, and what Jesus will be doing in the future. So as we've been doing uh, in this entire series, let's stand together and let's read the creed together. Many of you may already have it memorized. That's awesome. But let's read it with some energy and some enthusiasm today as we read the Apostles' Creed again. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. Today, we're going to be focusing on two lines in the creed, and those two two lines are, He ascended into heaven, and He is seated at the right hand of God. And I hope you have your Bibles. If you, if you do, go ahead and pull those out, and we're going to be in a passage in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. If you don't have your Bibles, you can find this in our app, our, our JCI app, or you can follow along in your notes as well. I want to show you today doc, a documented story from a first century Christian historian who, who he describes an individual who was given an opportunity to see into heaven from earth and see Jesus. And this man's name was Stephen. Now, who was Stephen? Stephen was one of the individuals, one of the seven individuals selected by the first apostles to help with the rapid growth of the church. If you look and read Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 6, you'll see that the church was growing extremely fast, so fast that they were unable to care for the many needs within the church. And so they selected a few other individuals to help carry the weight. And Stephen was one of those. Powered by the Holy Spirit, Stephen was the first person after the original apostles to, uh, uh, that it was said to have performed miracles, to perform many signs and many wonders. There was something special about Stephen. And Stephen boldly preached about Jesus to an audience that were primarily Greek-speaking Jews. And his message was polarizing. It, it drew people to Jesus, but it also angered, and it angered the religious leaders. And it angered them because, as you read in Acts chapter um, 7, verses 1 through 50, uh, 53, it, you'll see that uh, Stephen preached that Jesus was way more important than the temple that they worshiped in. That the person of Jesus was way more important than the sacrifices that they had performed for thousands of years. And this angered the religious leaders. And we're going to see their response now. Let's look at verse 54 through 60. Now, when they had heard these things, when, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he fell on his knees, then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, where Jesus is at and what he is doing right now has significant and profound meaning in our lives today. And I want to look at it through two different perspectives of Jesus, where he's at and what he was doing. The first perspective is this, is the posture of Jesus. Let's look at the posture of Jesus. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen's vision of of Jesus standing is one of the only passages in all of Scripture that describes Jesus as standing. Biblical scholars actually tell us that Jesus may be standing in Stephen's vision because of of the significance of the event that was about to take place on earth. It was as if the unfolding of events on earth captured Jesus' special attention, and so he stood up. Now, on the other hand... There's more than 15 New Testament passages that tell us that Jesus is actually seated at the right hand of God. And that is what the early Christians that drafted the Apostles' Creed believed to be true, and so they put it in the Creed. And and one of those passages that they reflected upon was Mark chapter 16, verse 19, where Mark says this, After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, he He ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, sitting at the right hand of God carries a lot of symbolism. What does it symbolize? The seated posture of Jesus symbolized the work of salvation is complete. The seated posture of Jesus at the right hand of God symbolizes the work of salvation is complete. What was the work of salvation? All we need to do is back up three lines in the creed. Pastor Christian talked about it last week. What was the, what was the work? It was that Jesus was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. It's the gospel message. And if you remember a few series ago, Pastor Christian talked to us about the final statements of Jesus on the cross. And his last statement on the cross was this, tetelestai. Tetelestai. What does tetelestai mean? It's a Greek word meaning it is finished. It is finished. Jesus accomplished his mission. He accomplished his purpose on the earth. It was as if he, he, after a long day of work, like we like to do, we like to go home and we like to take a seat and relax. But Jesus came on this earth to seek and save the lost. And mankind was unable to save himself. And so Jesus accomplished that mission by dying on the cross. A mission impossible for mankind was a mission accomplished for Jesus. And then approximately one year after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Stephen boldly stands before a group of religious leaders before the Sanhedrin And he shares a very challenging and a very convicting message. And the religious leaders were enraged. They were angered. And and did you capture how they responded? They covered their ears. They screamed at him. They rushed at him. And they took him outside of the city to kill him. Now, in the middle of their response, in the middle of the stoning of Stephen, Stephen's response is actually intriguing. Did you see what he did? His response is actually should be our response when we come before Jesus as well. In verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, in Scripture, people would kneel before Jesus if they needed help, if they needed to be saved, if they needed to be healed. They would kneel before him. And in Mark chapter 5, we read of a man who was possessed by demons, and he wanted to be delivered from the, the demon possession, so he knelt before Jesus and begged for his help. Uh, In Matthew chapter 8, a man with a disease of leprosy knelt before Jesus and asked Jesus, please save me, help me, heal me from from this horrible disease. A religious leader in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, it says that a religious leader knelt before Jesus requesting that his daughter be raised from the dead because she had recently passed. You see, kneeling before Jesus is a sign of humility and dependency on him. Kneeling before Jesus is a sign of humility and dependency on him. And throughout all of scripture, dozens upon dozens of if and then statements exist. Uh, the, the, the disciples talk to us about uh, if and then statements. God talks to us about, God talks to us through if and then statements. And one of those is in Second Corinthians, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's a, it's a profound if-and-then statement. Um, Solomon is about to dedicate the temple uh, to, to the, back, to, back to God. He built a temple for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was so far away from God. And God had one final statement that he wanted to share through Solomon. And he says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. There it is. If my people humble themselves, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins. If you miss everything I say say today, don't miss this statement. A posture of sincere humility initiates the movement of God in our lives. The posture of sincere humility initiates the movement of God in our lives. The brother of Jesus, James, says it like this, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Another if and then statement. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. Are you looking for God to move in your life in significant ways? Are are, are you looking or waiting for God to do, do something powerful in your lives? Are you waiting on a healing? Are you waiting on something really important? Then when was the last time you, you knelt before the Lord? You truly humbled yourself before God and asked for His help, asked for an intervention, asked for healing. You see, sincere humility initiates the movement of God in our lives. Pastor Christian um, was giving the staff a challenge about a year ago when I first came on staff. And the challenge was this, for 40 consecutive days in your quiet time, spend your quiet time on your knees praying to God, lifting your requests to God from your knees. And he, he reminded me of the incredible response from the staff. The staff really responded this way. It said, they, the staff said it caused us to pause from our pace of life and just rely on Him. Kneeling before God caused us to pause in our life 
from the hectic pace of our life to reflect on Him. You know, kneeling before God is a sign of humility, but it also is a demonstration of dependency on Him. The psalmist from Psalm 50 verse 15 says it like this, Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. You see, a posture of dependency honors God and it recognizes his love for you and me. Have you ever felt like I have in the past that sometimes your problems and your troubles that you're experiencing in life are really just a nuisance to God? Like, why would I bring this up to you? Really, this isn't that significant of a deal. I'll try and take care of this myself. And really, I just don't want to bother you, God, with my problems and my requests. I used to think that way until God gave me an, a physical example, an, a demonstration of his love for me. And, and it was through my son, Peter. Peter is our adopted son from Haiti. And when he first came to the United States, everything was brand new. I mean, he loved to push buttons and to flick switches and to explore. I mean, it was really fun to see, uh, to see life through his eyes, all the things that we take for granted. He was, he'd love to play with. He'd love to flick lights on and, and running water in the, in the bathroom. He'd turn off and on the faucet. And one of his favorite things to do was to flush toilets. He loved to flush the toilet and watch the water. That just blew his mind. Well, one morning I was half asleep. My wife and I were half asleep in our, in our beds. And all of a sudden I heard the toilet flush from the other side of the house. I'm like, oh, good. One of the kids are up. That's great. So I kind of dozed off back to sleep. And then I heard the toilet flush again. I'm like, okay. All right. Peter's up. All right. Very good. <laughs> kind of dozed off back to sleep. And then I heard it flush a third time. And then I got a little concerned. Like, well, what's going on? So I walk across the house, and I open the door to the bathroom, and what I saw absolutely blew my, blew my mind. There was Peter on the floor. The toilet was overfilling, water everywhere, and Peter was unraveling the toilet paper, wiping up the floor, taking the toilet paper, putting it back into the toilet, and flushing it, only to repeat the process. Every time he would do that, it would do what? It would only compound the problem. Now, after my initial frustration with the whole thing, it hit me like a brick in the head. God, that's exactly what I do with you. God, there, there are problems that I get myself into, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bother anybody with this. I'll just try and fix it myself. And you know what? Every time I do that, I compound the problem and I try to make that make and I make it absolutely worse. Have you ever experienced that? You know what would have made that whole thing, that whole problem with Peter and the overflowing toilet would have made it much better, would have solved the whole problem if Peter just simply did what? He just called out to me. Dad, I need your help. Dad, I need your help. There's not a problem that you're experiencing now that is, not, that, that is too insignificant for God to take care of. There's not a situation that you're in that bothers God. He wants to hear from you. He wants to, it honors Him when you lift up your request to Him because it's a posture of dependency. He wants you to be dependent on Him. Are you dependent on Him? Can I challenge you over the next 40 days? I want to challenge you over the next 40 days that in your own quiet time, 
In your own prayer life, would you spend that time on your knees, lifting your request to Him from your knees? Get on your knees and just watch how God will move in and through your life. Let me challenge you over the next 40 days. You see, the fact that Jesus is seated right now should give you and I tremendous comfort that His work of salvation is complete. There's not a laundry list of things that we need to do to gain His favor and His love for us. Jesus already completed the mission. That work is done. First was the posture of Jesus. It's seated. But second is the position of Jesus. And this one is equally as powerful. The position of Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. Have you ever heard of the phrase, he was my right hand man or she is my right hand woman? Have you heard that phrase? This is its origin right here. Sitting at the right hand of a king or a leader carries with it some incredible, incredible importance. The right hand of God is a position of highest honor and highest authority. The right hand of God is a position of highest honor and highest authority. Jesus' position of authority is not passive, though. He didn't ascend to heaven and take a seat and take a break and relax. What he is doing for you and I has a very distinct purpose and ongoing role. John chapter 5, verse 21 through 23 explains what that purpose is. It's this, is John writes, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son, who is Jesus, gives, the li- gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Him. In, in our household, in the Reeb household, we have a position of highest honor and highest authority. It's actually in our vehicles. It's the right-hand passenger seat. Is it like that in your household? It's a position of highest honor and highest authority. Why? Because you get all the best. You get the best views. You have control of the seats and the temperature, but here's the ultimate authority. You get to control the radio. You get to control what's played over the radio. It's a position of high authority in our household. We make it a little game. We call it shotgun, right? We call it shotgun. One of the rules in the game of shotgun is is everybody has to be outside of the house who's riding in the vehicle that then then you can call shotgun, but everybody has to be outside the house. And the kids, you know, they they get in fights over it. It's, It's crazy. It's a position of authority. But far more important than that is Jesus' authority in our lives. His authority in our lives carries with it life or death. Jesus' audience, when he was communicating, when he walked this earth, would understand this authority that he carried. When Jesus lived, the world was ruled by the the Roman government and was ruled by Rome. And Rome would host what were called gladiator games. And gladiator games were an opportunity for individuals to come watch incredible violence. It was, it was gruesome. And the popularity of the games were rising and, and were at its peak around the time when Jesus was on this earth. And men and some women would fight to the death in arenas and large coliseums. And if a gladiator had been defeated but not killed, the crowd would begin to shout, Police verso. 
Police verso, which meant with a turned thumb. Thumbs up meant life, meant mercy. Thumbs down meant death. And the editor or the authority of the games would give their final decision for the gladiator, their final judgment, and sometimes they would take into consideration what the crowd was chanting. Now, unlike Commodus in the movie Gladiator, who was always looking for a way to sentence someone to death, listen to me, Jesus does not condemn. Jesus does not condemn John chapter 3, verse 17, it comes right after verse 16, which uh, many of us know, but John three seventeen is as powerful. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus does not condemn. Even J- Jesus said, said it Himself in John 10, 10, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. The the authority of Jesus in our life represents life. When we humbly call out to him and give him authority in our life, listen, his thumb is always up. When we call out to him and we give him authority in our life, what is his response? His response is his thumb is always up. Here's why. Here's why. The position of Jesus at the right hand of God symbolizes that a relationship has been restored. That the position of Jesus at the right hand of God symbolizes that a relationship is restored. God's relationship with Jesus was restored. Jesus returned to his place of glory that was before he came to this earth. Jesus returned to carry out his role as king of kings and as lord of lords. And not only should what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross give us tremendous joy... What he's doing, what Jesus is doing for you and for me at this very moment should give us exceeding joy. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 7 and verse 25. It's in your notes. Such a powerful verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who is he? That is Jesus. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who are far from God If they draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Will you circle the two words, always live? Would you underline that in your Bible? He always lives to make intercession for you and for me. What is Jesus right now? He's interceding on our behalf. He's an intercessor. What is intercession? Intercession is a legal term. It means to come between. Jesus is our mediator. And when Satan, who is known as the accuser, tries to make allegations against us and tries to point out all of our sins and all of our weaknesses before God, it's Jesus who comes between. And all of those accusations fall on deaf ears because Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is continuously right now pleading our case. When Satan goes to God and says that you're unworthy, you don't deserve it, Jesus says, no, he is highly valued. When Satan goes before God and says that person or you're a sinner, Jesus says, no, he, is, he, he has been forgiven. When Satan says that you're guilty, Jesus says you're innocent. When, when Satan says you're an enemy of God, Jesus says, no, no, that's, that's your friend. That's my friend. 
When Satan says you're a slave trapped in your sin and utter demise, Jesus says, no, no, that's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. And in the courts of heaven, hear me, in the courts of heaven, you cannot stand in your own defense. Jesus must be your mediator. And that requires you to, to be humble and to trust his authority in our lives. And our posture, or our response to the posture and the position of Jesus right now in our lives is at, it should be total submission. Because when it comes to any authority in our lives, we really only have two choices, right? Any authority in our lives, we really only have two choices. First one, we can fall underneath the authority that's in our lives, or we can try to live outside of that authority, and let me just tell you from personal experience, anytime I've tried to live outside the authority, whatever authority that is in my life, it hasn't worked out good for me. So we're in July. It's 2017. JCI, at the beginning of the year, released a theme. And our theme for the year, 2017, was to live fully alive. Can I ask you a question as we're right in the middle of the year? How's that going? Are you living fully alive? Is 2017 the year that you can say, you know what? I have been fully alive this year. I, I am living under the authority of Jesus and, and, and it's allowing me to live fully alive. How is that working out for you? You know, I, after, as I studied for this message, I asked this question, God, why did you allow Stephen to catch a glimpse of the posture and the position of Jesus. Perhaps it was to prepare Stephen for what was about to take place in his life and, and to give him a hope and, a, and to give him, uh, give him some sort of a, a good perspective on what was about to take place in his life. But I believe it's even more profound than that. In verse 57 and 58, I think we capture a glimpse of that. It says, at this, they covered their ears. This is the religious leaders now. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him outside of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, they, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. Stephen saw Jesus positioned at the right hand of God, a place of honor, authority, and highest favor. Stephen understood that because Jesus was in a place of authority in his own life, he had a responsibility. What was that responsibility? Well, it's the same responsibility that you and I have today as well if you are a Christian. Our responsibility is to love those who are far from God, to love that neighbor who is far from God, to love that, that coworker who is far from God. And we need to share Jesus with that individual. We need to share the love of Jesus where, wherever we go. And, and thirdly, our responsibility is to remain strong in our faith in Jesus because there will always be people watching. There will always be be witnesses. And who was witnessing Stephen in this moment in our story? It was a man by the name of Saul. We learned about Saul last week. Saul was an individual who hated Christians. He persecuted the church. He ravaged the early church. Paul was as, or Saul was as far away from God as you can be. Saul, one of those religious leaders on that day, witnessed the stoning of Stephen and he approved of it. But I believe God was using Stephen 
and the death of Stephen to prepare Saul for one of the greatest spiritual transformations to ever take place in all of history. Saul would meet Jesus himself and his name would be changed to Paul. And Paul would become one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest church planners, one of the greatest ambassadors for Jesus this world has ever known. There was a witness that day and it changed his life. The writers of the Apostles' Creed believed it was important for us to understand where Jesus is at and what he is doing, that they drafted it in in the, the, the Creed to give us courage for the future, to give us courage for today. And I stand before you today, and I hope you embrace it as well, to say, I believe in Jesus, that he ascended into heaven. It's not a fairy tale. It's not an unsolved mystery. And that he is seated right now at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father. Would you bow your heads right now and close your eyes for just a few moments? Jesus isn't dead. It's not a conspiracy theory. He's alive, he's present, and he's active in our lives today. And he has authority in our lives. But here's the thing, you you have to allow it. He doesn't force his authority, but he knocks. He nudges. And maybe today he's moving in your heart and maybe he's nudging in your heart. Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says this, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. I will come in and have a relationship with that person and they with me. Will you allow Jesus to come into your life and be your authority, freeing you of what is weighing you down? so that you can live fully alive. Have you done that? Have you given Jesus full authority in your life? I want to give-